I will say to all of you, I have tried to process how best to handle these opening comments. What to say, how to say it, what to communicate, what that looks like. And this is what I've come to believe. There is only one thing that's appropriate in this moment. And it's a spirit of gratitude. Gratitude for this church. For this church since 1984 has been a place that I have been able to call home. This church has done more to shape me and form me spiritually than any other entity or any other place in my life. This church has provided me lifelong friends and lifelong mentorship of great men both in this community and in this church that have served it so incredibly well. And they have been not only my friends, but they have been my encouragement, my supporters, my help. It was in this church that I found the love of my life. And I will always be profoundly grateful to this church. I will say to you that life turns everybody upside down from time to time. Life affects us in ways that we we don't really know how to process at times. Like the woman who finds out that her husband is having an illicit affair. She hasn't known it. She's caught in the midst of that trauma. Or the businessman who finds out his long-term business partner has embezzled lots and lots of money from him and what he thought was true about his own financial situation isn't true. Like the teenager who thinks just a night of romance is something harmless until a pregnancy occurs And now something has to be dealt with. Or in my case, a minister. And I will tell you that this moment isn't easy. It's not easy to know what to say, and it's not easy to know what to do. And faith gets shaken in these moments. Had it not been Lord who was on our side. Because it is God who is sovereign even in moments that are like this. But see, we would be just as foolish to think that evil wins the day. Because the Bible vibrates with the steady drumbeat of faith. That God takes these things that are evil and that are not good and he turns them into righteousness. See, I think that we in our culture have come conditioned to believe that you know what, when hard times come, when hard moments show up, when things we don't expect end up happening, 
We want five easy steps to fix it so that we can go on with our life. If that's what you're looking for this morning, I don't have that for you. I have something far better. God himself, who is sovereign, who is here, who is with us in the midst of this moment. It's interesting. I planned this sermon series almost a year ago. And we come to Acts chapter 10, and I had, at least from a working title, entitled this sermon, No Partiality, Tearing Down the Walls That Divide Us. God is sovereign. And God is moving. Acts chapter 10, I'd like to look at for just a minute. It's going to be a story that is interesting and difficult. You're going to get to see the move of God in the life particularly of two men. One who is an elitist of the elite. He's of the Italian regiment. His name is Cornelius. Another one is a fisherman that we know as Simon Peter. Listen to how Luke renders this moment, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout, and they were God-fearing. He gave generously to those that were in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day, about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of the Lord who came to him and said, Cornelius, and Cornelius looked up and stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. And I want you to know how specific God can be. Because before there was ever a GPS, there is the Spirit of God who gives implicit directions. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter and he is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. You think the Spirit of God wanted wanted Peter found in this moment? When the angel spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants He told them everything that happened, and he sent them to Joppa. God is about to interject himself into a circumstance and a situation that is not good. And it has not been good for a very, very long time. It is, there is this man named Cornelius who is a worshiper of God, and yet there is this division because he is not fully accepted into what all of that means. Here's the interesting point. As God is sending visions to Cornelius, God is also working on the life and on Simon Peter. Listen to how the story picks up there. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Understand what that moment meant. Peter is saying things that are unclean. And as a devout Jew, he is not going to be able to consume any of these things. But the Spirit says, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter's response is the response of a devout Jew. Surely not. You don't want me involved in that. You don't want me connected in all of that. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Here's the crux of this passage for me. It's verse 15. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. If I am really trying to hone that verse down, Peter, don't you dare call anything I've made common. So what's the message? What is the thing that God is trying to communicate to Cornelius, who's part of the Italian regiment, to Peter, who's a Jew? Trying to say that God shows no partiality. That we should dare not call common that which he has made. God takes both of these men and he has the same message that all people, regardless of race, socioeconomic level, education level, all people are created in the image of God. And if that is true, then why is there so much division and distress between us? Why is it that man seems content on building walls that divide and God seems to be equally content on tearing every wall man makes like that completely down? The elders just, and Alan just read, there has been a conflict in this church. And you're thinking, what in the world does this passage have to do with that? Why should we even talk about this and that? Let me tell you. Here's the temptation in a conflict. People pick and choose sides. And when they do, they will treat everyone else on the other side of that conflict as if they are common. But all are made in the image of God. All are deserving of respect, love, consideration. Let me tell you something. 
This message is not a message of condemnation. This message is a message of reconciliation. That God does not want that kind of division among us. And that God has the ability to take that thing that has been evil and he can turn it into good. Are you willing to participate with God? See, that really is the question we have to ask ourselves. So I've been watching this young man named Clayton Jennings for a while. He does a lot of spoken word things. And I like him a lot because he's kind of radical in some of the things that he says. I found a video of his that I I think really fits this moment. I'd like to share it with you, and then we'll kind of come back together and spend a moment or two in discussion of it. Take a look. I was once told a story by a close friend of mine who said that after a long night of drinking on a Saturday night, he woke up Sunday morning and decided for the first time in his life he wanted to go to church. So he got in his car, he drove, found the closest church he could, and walked into the back door of the service and sat down in the church pew. He said he didn't know what to expect that day, but he felt like he would at least leave there feeling like a better person, feeling a little bit of joy, feeling a little bit of love. Instead, he left there downtrodden. Instead, he left there crushed because of the judgmental looks and attitudes that came his way that day. He said, you know what, man? I think they smelled the alcohol on me. And I don't think they like that. He told me that no matter what happens to him in this life, no matter where he goes or what he does, he will never go and sit on a church pew again. Because you know what? He felt more loved, he felt more accepted, and he felt more joy on a bar stool than he did in a church pew. You see, a lot of people who sit in these church pews haven't taken the time to open up the Bible that they beat over top of other people's heads. Because if they did open up that Bible, they would see a Jesus Christ that lived completely different than they do now. They would see a Jesus Christ who came into this world and hung out with drunkards, who hung out with prostitutes, who hung out with tax collectors. They would see a Jesus Christ who said, I come not to save the self-righteous, those who think they have it figured out, those religious people who sit on their high horse and act like they are better than everyone else. No, I came to save those who are in need of a physician. I came to save sinners because I love sinners. We are supposed to mirror Jesus Christ as followers of him. And in doing so, we are supposed to show love to the rest of the world. Jesus Christ said, they will know you by your love. He didn't say they'll know you by your judgmental looks, by your judgmental attitudes, by this thought process that you are enlightened and they aren't. They will not know you by your hatred. They will not know you by your condescending looks towards them or the Bible beating over their heads. He never said any of that stuff. He said, they will know you by your love. Where's the love? You see, our generation can be different. Our generation can set a new standard. Our generation can say that whether we sit in a church pew or whether we sit on a bar stool, we're going to treat each other with love and respect. We don't have to make the same mistakes that those people who came before us made. No, we do not. We can show each other love. 
Because at the end of the day, we are all in need of love. The love of Jesus Christ came here and died for sinners. And you know where the sinners are at? The sinners are on the bar stool. The sinners are on the church pew. We are all sinners. We're all in need of the love of Jesus Christ. There has to come a time where we stop seeing each other by the places that we sit, and we start seeing each other for the people we are. Because after all, we're just people. People in need of love. We have to stop judging each other by the places that we sit. If there is anything I could say to us as a church today, we are broken and we are fallen human beings. It doesn't make any difference if you're broken and fallen on the bar stool. Church, somehow, someday, some way, we have to remember those of us in the church pew are broken too. And we struggle every day to do what God calls us to do. Every single day. There's a statement I want you to remember. We need to learn to value others because when we value others, we value God. To devalue others is to directly offend God and we devalue other people by the dividing walls we build, whether they be race, whether they be economics. And here's the kicker maybe the biggest dividing wall we build is our need to be right. We're not. God is right. Christ is right. We all strive for it. We want it. We need it. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers. And I've been reading some of his sermons lately. And the sermon, The Weight of Glory, caught my attention because of these words. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. This does not mean we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play 
But our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority. No presumption. It's what Jesus is saying when he's asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment is this. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. You love your neighbor as yourself. You know how you love your neighbor as yourself? You treat them seriously with no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. That's what it means to be called into the church. See, God is in the business, in my opinion, of taking dividing walls, interjecting himself into those situations, and then taking what was meant for evil and turning it into good. I said as I started this sermon, it is the drumbeat of the Bible, and it is certainly the drumbeat of the gospel. Here's some examples. I want to, I've got some pictures for you. Here's the first one. This is Joseph. In this painting, Joseph is being taken by his brothers and thrown into a pit because his brothers didn't like the fact that he considered himself the favorite, which indeed he was. They went and told their father that he'd been killed by a wild animal. Joseph's brothers intended to kill him. One of Joseph's brothers allowed him to be saved, and thus he was sold into Egypt. But it was in that moment... As he sold into Egypt, cream rises to the top, and he rose to the top in Potiphar's house, the man who bought him. But he was falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison. It looks like he's at the bottom again. And then he interprets Pharaoh's servant's dreams, dreams Pharaoh has. And in that moment... Joseph is elevated to the second place in all of Egypt. And he saves not only the nation of Egypt from the famine, but he saves his own family as well. And he makes a statement to his brothers. It's the last statement he makes to them, at least the last one we have recorded in Scripture. What you have intended for evil, God's intended for good. I want you to think about Job. No more devout man that has ever lived. Satan comes to God and says, well, look, of course he's devout. He hasn't had any trials, tribulations, tests. Nothing showed up for him. So God allows the testing to occur. And it does. And he has everything taken from him, including his health. Do we have that picture of Job? I want want you to see that one as well. Because it's a good one of him with his wife on one side saying, curse God and die. And his three friends giving him some of the worst advice you could possibly give. And Job himself begins to question 
God. And in that moment, God says, okay, you've got questions, I have questions for you. Brace yourself like a man. And in that moment, God realizes, you know what? I, I, or Job realizes, I am nothing before the sovereign God. Nothing. My job here is to trust God, move forward, and do what I need to do. Evil came to Moses. It's the next picture that's there. Let's take a look at that. This is a scene of Moses killing a fellow Egyptian. Remember, he was a Hebrew raised as an Egyptian. He decides when he sees one of his Hebrew brothers being mistreated to kill the Egyptian. It creates all kind of havoc. And instead of God interjecting Moses into the circumstance there, he sends him on a 40-year timeout. How many people put their kids and grandkids in timeout? How would you like it to be 40 years long where he's in a desert? And Moses leaves as a soldier, but he comes to save his people as a shepherd. I want you to think about David and his sin with Bathsheba. You remember that moment. I want you to think about Daniel and his being dragged into Babylonian captivity. I want you to think about Nehemiah and finding the walls of Jerusalem absolutely ruined. But without those moments of evil, David doesn't write songs of grace. Daniel doesn't rule in a land where he is enslaved. And Nehemiah ends up rebuilding Jerusalem's walls with Babylonian lumber. Do you not think we serve a God who is big enough to take our nonsense and turn it into something that is powerful and profound? That's what he does. Because we are full of nonsense. And we will take things to levels they don't need to go to. But God is God. And God is sovereign. And you can't read Scripture without coming to Jesus. How many times in his earthly life did bad become good? The Bethlehem innkeeper told Jesus' parents, tried their luck in the barn. That was awful. And God entered the world in the humblest place on earth. And that was glory. The wedding had no wine. You remember that story? And Jesus' mother Walks up to him, as mothers do. Hey, I need you to fix this. And Jesus looks at her and says, Woman, my time has not yet come. It's not time for me to fix this. She turns to the servants and said, Do whatever he tells you to do. That's what mamas do. And Jesus turned that water into wine, and it was good. I want you to think about the storm on the Sea of Galilee when he separated from his disciples. 
They're scared to death and they watch from afar this one come walking on the water toward them. It's in the boat, everything calms down, and he turns fear-filled disciples into worshipers. 5,000 men needed food for their families. It's a bad day to be a disciple. Jesus turned a basket into a bakery. And it's now a good day to be a disciple. With Jesus, bad became good just as night becomes day regularly, reliably, refreshingly. And let me say, as we put this picture up on the screen, next one, guys, if you will, redemptively. I want you to enter with me the moment that Christ is crucified. I want you to feel the weight of that moment. I want you to hear the hammer ring. That's nothing but your and my sin being crucified to a Roman cross. I want you to experience what it was like for him to be turned to face the mocking world that was before him. I want you to hear his words to a thief that was beside him. Today you'll be with me in paradise to a mother that is in front of him woman behold your son to John who is by his mother behold your mother I want you to think about how it must have felt for the son of God who was intimately tied in with his father to look up and to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to feel the moment when he looked up to heaven and said, into your hands, I commend my spirit. I want you to hear the finality of his words. It is finished. That moment wasn't just for a group of people over 2,000 years ago. That moment is for us. And evil and Satan at that moment when he bowed his head and died and they took him down from that cross and they buried him quickly because it was the Sabbath. As his mother got to sit there with her cries and screams of agony at her firstborn being killed, evil rubs its hands together and believes it has won. And on Friday that is true, and on Saturday that is true, but there is one more picture. 
Next one, please. It is that picture. Because as Tony Campolo said years ago, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. And on Sunday, this one who it looked like it was over for, and Satan and evil had won, walks out of that tomb whole and complete. In fact, when women come, the the angel looks at them and says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Go tell his disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. That's where he's heading toward. That's what he's heading to do. My question for us this morning, do we believe that there is no evil beyond God's reach? It was German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, The deep meaning of the cross is that there is no suffering on earth that is not born of God. We are not alone in a difficult moment. God is here with us. God is in the midst of it with us. He is not abandoned. He has not turned his back. He is doing what he does. For God can redeem every pit and every circumstance. And so what you have to ask yourself, do you believe that God can redeem those dividing walls and those hard moments? Or do you resign yourself to the idea that it's just too much and it will never be good again? There are some people who give up on God. There are some people in moments like this that give up on church. See, the Cemetery of Hope is overpopulated with sour souls who have settled for a small God. We cannot be among them. We cannot be among them. We have to step out and we have to show who we are. But I will say to you, church, God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility. Just the opposite, it empowers it. When we trust God, we think more clearly, we react more decisively. It's like Nehemiah who said in Nehemiah 4, we prayed to our God and we posted the guard day and night to meet the threat. We prayed. We posted. We trusted. We acted. You trust God to do what you can't. You obey God to do what you can. You don't let a crisis paralyze you. You don't let sadness overwhelm you. You don't let fear intimidate you. To do nothing is to do the wrong thing. To do something is to do the right thing. And to believe that God is in the midst of this right now is to do the highest thing. Because it is our job to trust him in a day and I'm talking about not this day specifically but just where we are in the course of history in a day of anger and revenge be a courier of grace be a sturdy link in the chain of faith be a harvester of hope in the midst of famine trust God 
trust God. Don't put your faith in man. Man will always disappoint. But Jesus never does. You trust God. I saw a sign from World War II that I have been mulling over in the last weeks. It says simply, keep calm and carry on. That is our task. That is our joy. We're about to enter into a time of communion. And as we come to the Lord's table, here is something that I've been meditating on for the last few weeks as well. I asked Jarrett to lead it here in a minute, and he will. I'm going to ask you to stay seated during the song and just let the words wash over you as you sing it. Keith and Kristen Getty are modern-day hymn writers, and one of their famous hymns is one that we sing often. It's called In Christ Alone. These words from that first verse, I think, set where we are and what we need to be about and doing. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm as the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled. When striving cease, he's my comforter. He's my all in all. For here, in the love of Christ, I stand. But for me, it is that last verse that helps me focus and hang on in a moment like this. No guilt in life. No fear of death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. For he is mine, and I am his. And here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand.